1: Welcome my friends to the Bob and Brad podcast produced by Bob and Brad, the two most famous physical therapists on the internet. I am Bob and I'm exactly one half of the Bob and Brad team. Today, we're gonna talk about how to rehab your lungs after COVID-19, pneumonia, and or surgery. Uh, By the way, before I go any further, I do wanna mention that I had some recent surgery. And so if I sound like I'm drunk or slurring my words, both may be true. No, I do have surgery and it's numb and and there's some scar tissue there and it's making me difficult to to talk. Uh, Today, my guest is Dr. I'm going to screw up this name, but Sigfredo Alderanda, and he's a board certified internal medicine, critical care, pulmonary disease, and pulmonology physician. He earned his medical degree for, from the University of Puerto Rico. He went on to complete his internship and medical resi- residency. So I'm talking about at the Veterans Administration Hospital in Washington, D.C. He complained, completed his medical training with a fellowship at Brooke Army Medical Center in Fort Sam Houston, Texas. Doctor Alderondo, thanks so much for joining us. Okay, welcome to the program, Doctor. Alda Rondo, <laughs> <laughs> I probably screwed it up already. I'm just going to call you doctor. Uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, really some valuable knowledge that we can le- uh, glean from you. And uh, let's, I'm going to go ahead and get started off. Now you're a, a, a pulmonologist, correct? Correct. Yeah. Would, would you explain what t- to the layperson what that is?
0: Well, a, a pulmonologist is somebody who has done a subspecialty after doing an internal medicine residency, the a subspecialty training or further training, call that a fellowship uh, in, in pulmonary medicine. So um, concentrating- a, On the lungs. On the lungs, right. Yeah. Concentrating on lung diseases, of diverse types from the chronic uh, mundane to severe to acute and chronic, uh, the whole spectrum but basically we, we devote our uh, skills and, and, and energies in the treatment, diagnosis and treatment of lung diseases.
1: So am I right in saying that in some cases, you're kind of the lead guy, like as spe- uh, supposed to the patient with lung cancer, but maybe in a different case, you may be called in as a, as a, for a consult? Correct,
0: actually most in, most in the acute setting, in the inpatient setting, the majority of the times that we get involved in the care of somebody is when we're asked to see somebody, a patient as a consultant. I see. Uh, if, the, if the pulmonary problem is the most important, severe one, we basically take the lead gotcha. in the, the directing. In the outpatient setting is a bit different because, yeah, we see patients a, as a consultant as well. But patients who have primarily a severe chronic lung problem, we pretty much become their, their main anchor uh, physician in caring for them uh, throughout their illness.
1: So uh, have you been seeing many COVID patients and and are you the lead person on those?
0: Many times we are. The answer to your first question is of course, yes. Uh, Unfortunately, yes, both in the acute and the chronic setting. uh, And uh, in many of these, uh, we are actually the the main physician. We do collaborate quite a bit in this particular uh, disease. With infectious disease consultants uh, as well, so usually uh, we are collaborating
1: with an infectious disease uh, physician as well. Gotcha, gotcha. Are people with lung problems at a higher risk for obtaining COVID, or are they just more at a higher risk for having more severe issues?
0: Yeah, rather the latter. Uh, no. Um, There is no evidence uh, that by having any certain type of uh, lung disease, you're more likely to get infected. Uh, The the infection seems to be more of a function of the virus itself that is highly infectious and contagious. Sure. However, uh, if you get infected and you have chronic lung problems, yeah, you're more likely to have more severe
1: complications. Would you mind taking a minute to talk about maybe patients with moderate to severe COVID and what kind of things are going on physiologically with those patients?
0: Sure, so the virus is primarily a respiratory virus. Uh, It it reaches the host uh, through the airways, uh, usually uh, the uh, nasal passages. Uh, And uh, the initial symptoms are related to the um, respiratory illness. Uh, The the patient may, uh, may experience mild systemic symptoms the majority of the patients, by the way, will have a mild uh, clinical course, the majority. And in some cases actually be totally asymptomatic, Sure. which is the uh, treacherous portion of this, that you know you may be totally asymptomatic and yet transmit the virus to somebody else, but then right. they do that well. Uh, but the mild presentation is uh, pretty much very vague and very much similar to the common cold, okay? We gotcha. have a little, little headache, a little nasal congestion maybe a low-grade fever, and within a few days, you're over it. Um, However, uh, what we're seeing is that, uh, unlike the common cold, there is a substantial number of patients that will have a more, will progress into more severe um, uh, phase, in which case now when they, by the way, the incubation period with the Delta mutation, Delta virus, variant is is shorter. So we're talking three days between infection and and symptoms uh, onset. So the next phase, uh, if you will, uh, the patient will have now more severe systemic symptoms, headache, persistent fever, cough. Now the cough becomes more evident. And at that point, the patient will have a completely normal chest x-ray. They will have normal oxygenation and nothing alarming yet, okay? Uh, When that starts happening, then unfortunately there is a very, a thin threshold to then develop more severe symptoms. That's why acknowledging the likelihood of infection, acknowledging your underlying comorbidities, that's the time when intervening with monoclonal antibodies can make a huge difference. Sure, in in, in mitigating the the evolution of the illness. So unfortunately, we see that I just saw a patient earlier today, uh, two hours ago, who has. Hopefully it will be okay, but it's been uh, hit pretty hard. And he was asking me that same question. How, why did not get this? And I said, well, well, unfortunately, I cannot answer that question for you. He should have. There's an underutilized in, the, in our community. But anyway, that's a, the moderate phase in which the patient will have some symptoms. And at that point, the likelihood of progression is now significantly higher. Sure. And, and unfortunately, once the floodgates open, now, the severity of the illness is not the virus anymore. It's actually the inflammatory response of the host against the virus. That's why the treatment early on that can work against the virus, which is the monoclonal antibody, sure, and an, an antiviral agent that we use in the hospital called remdesivir, is only helpful early on because that basically is, uh, a, a drug that is directed at uh, repressing the viral replication and its secondary problems. Gotcha. Once these, once the severity of the illness uh, increases, and the problem now is a systemic inflammation, now we're talking other things that we try to do, which is why we use corticosteroids, dexamethasone, and we use other agents that are directed at, at the blocking the uh, impact of those proteins that are released, the interleukins, particularly IL six. So we use uh, another monoclonal antibody called tozilizumab, uh, or other drugs, another one's baricitinib. Basically, these drugs are now trying to block the inflammatory response. Okay, and, and they do help uh, a bit, but uh, it is no way to predict once the patient crosses that barrier who is going to be the one that will be deteriorate quickly, end up on a ventilator. Right now, I just saw a patient two days ago, 31 years old, completely healthy, obviously mm. unvaccinated, who is on a ventilator and his lungs are destroyed. destroyed. Oh my gosh. You know, 31 years old, previously healthy. So we have a subset of people that will progress to that degree and we don't know how. what are the risk factors for that to happen. Now we know that those that are immuno-incompetent transplant patients, uh, or uh, immunosuppressed for other reasons, uh, will be more likely to progress. I will likely, though. But, you know, we have seen patients like that who actually did well. So it is not as a guarantee.
1: It's just a mystery.
0: It is. What we do know, it just uh, led to the most recent uh, recommendations regarding the booster shot, is that those people that are immunocompromised may not benefit much at all from the vaccine. Oh they, really? Yeah, you know, the, their antibody response, the immune response to the to the vac uh, to the vaccine, is is completely uh, dwarfed or, or significantly less potent, if you will, than the normal host. And that's sure. that's. What we do. So people that are vaccinated who know are less likely to be protected by the vaccine, are the ones that are should be front row to get the booster shot. Uh,
1: This uh, inflammatory response, how does it present itself? I mean, what are some of the damages that the high-level inflammation can present? Yeah, good question.
0: Uh, The the most striking and prevalent problem is the respiratory uh, apparatus. The the, uh, lung injury that results in severe uh, drops in oxygenation or respiratory failure, okay? But also maybe associated with uh, a uh, endothelial uh, inflammatory changes, so the the lining
1: of the lining, the lining
0: of the, the, blood, lining. Vessels, yeah. the, of the blood vessels uh, is impacted, so that there is a preponderance of thrombosis. So there's a high so risk blood cl- for
1: blood clots blood
0: clots blood clots blood clots uh, in the venous and at arterial too. Oh really? Yes. So and that may be associated with coronary ischemia, with uh, cerebral strokes, uh, and for example, and 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 venous thromboembolism, so blood clots in the lower extremities that um, reach the pulmonary vasculature, which sure. is, by the way, one of the reasons why we always use uh, anticoagulant therapy on, on our patients as gotcha. a
1: preventive thing. So so are you are you talking about, at what level are you talking about? Are we talking about the bronchi, bronchioli, or alveoli? I mean, sure. any level of that? You know, the, the most track
0: in a more most important level or, or, or site where this is uh, uh relevant is the alveolus. Sure, it's the, uh, the blood it's exchange, alveolar, sure. The alveolar capillary membrane. Yeah, in the beginning, all the respiratory tract uh, is affected. So there's a lot of bronchitis early on, cough. And and, and not only just cough, many of these patients have this severe pain. The, the, the tracheobronchitis is is really out of proportion to other things that they really complain to you of severe pain which is which is one of the reasons we uh mainstay of therapy includes inhaled corticosteroids uh, on oh, sure. uh and um aside so, from right. the, why the Yeah.
1: why do you think the loss of smell
0: well, the, the olfactory uh, sensors that we have in our nasal passages are, uh, it is the first barrier uh, that is oh, the nasal mucosa. Sure. Well, by the way, we have a high concentration of nitric oxide in the upper respiratory tract. Yep. So yep. The, the inflammatory, uh, there is uh, uh, afferent sensors or nerve uh, uh, afferents in the respiratory tract that also have to do with uh, the sense of smell and taste as well. So they basically it's a secondary casualty. The thing about it is that uh, there is, in some cases, it's thought that that becomes an important thing to identify because it may herald uh, uh, CNS complications or encephalitis. Um, it is not really proven to be the fact, but there's some speculation that there is some correlation between that event uh, and the severe headaches, uh, and sometimes even encephalitis of some of these patients sure. have. Um, but it, it is just part of the uh, respiratory tract. Okay.
1: My gosh, it was really cascaded events. So are, are ventilators considered harmful now or helpful, or where are we at with that right now?
0: Uh, it, it's funny you ask me that question, because the same patient I was telling about was telling me, my wife just told me, call me don't let them put you in a ventilator because we have two people that are ventilators and died. Sure. And I said, well, I said, look, the issue is look at it differently. Uh, when the disease escalates to that level that you need mechanical ventilation, it's a big flag that is a very serious now uh, illness. Right. And your lungs are failing. So nobody will put you in a ventilator just because. It, the fact that it, it's done means that your lungs are failing. Now, to, back to your question, Uh, in the beginning of the pandemic, uh, pandemic, there was this, uh, notion that we wanted to avoid mechanical ventilation because, uh, it was, uh, potentially damaging and this and that. Mm -hmm. Well, the the answer to your question is when mechanical ventilation is necessary, it is done. It allows the clinician to, in a more, uh, reliable way, ensure that the oxygenation to the body is maintained. It gives you an opportunity to do what proning, what we do is put the patient on their tummy to improve their oxygenation by improving the relationship between blood flow and oxygenation. So, And uh, it allows you uh, to care for the patient better. Gotcha. There's always a downside. So intubation, mechanical ventilation needs to be done in a certain way so that we follow certain guidelines so, that the lungs are not injured in the process. So, we know we've learned a lot about how to manage respiratory failure over the years, and we apply that information and how we deal with COVID patients. So, there's no contraindication to intubate and initiate mechanical ventilation. But when it happens, rather do it in a semi elective way than in a, in a rush at three o'clock in the morning when the patient has a respiratory arrest.
1: Sure. That
0: is, and by the way, for the sake of the personnel caring for the patient, gives you everybody to have their PPP, PPE on, the protection so that it can be done in a safe way, so we don't spread the virus around others that are caring for the patient. So that needs to be taken into account.
1: And that is a big concern. Um, also, when you're able to move along further and start rehabbing the, the uh, muscles, you gotta be aware of that. They're still symptomatic or could cause symptoms? Uh, I mean,
0: sure. Well, now that it comes into cell, patients that are rehabbing, like any other patient who's recovering from respiratory failure, an acute devastating critical critical illness, they will be weak. They'll be yeah. uh, penalized weakness, uh, as a well known entity in the ICU. So COVID patients are no different. Uh, so we we do initiate uh, within our means everything that we can to rehab these patients. But in this case, you're right, uh, Bob uh, is the fact that uh, we have to be mindful, this patient may still be contagious, uh, and uh, so how we do that, we, we are mindful of that our respiratory therapists know that very well, and the patient is instructed, they explain how to, what to do, and they can, if they do any anything that will be potentially aerosol generating, they'll be by themselves uh, when
1: they do sure. that. Sure, gotcha. So, We've kind of talked a little bit about the medical portion, the medical management of these uh, of COVID. So now I'd like to move on to more of the training that would go on for the respiratory muscle training. That when would that occur, and and at what point would you initiate that after COVID? Thank you for the question. Um,
0: if I have a patient who is uh, cognitively uh functional uh mm-hmm. able to operate and follow commands uh and the patient's oxygenation now has stabilized so they basically are not requiring uh either bipap or non-invasive ventilation or 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 invasive ventilation basically they're oxygenated with the nasal cannula sure so, so they have access their, their lips oral cavity now is available uh, for um exercising of the different different types. That's the patient that I would initiate that. Uh, if like anybody else who's now been subject to an acute injury, respiratory injury. So what we do is uh, we encourage the patients to participate uh, with a series of, we, we do emphasize mobility uh, as much as we can. So that means getting off their back. Getting movement, uh, getting, yeah. As you know, you in, in your field, you, you, you mm-hmm. know that so. of well. um, but the thing that is many times overlooked is the, the importance of exercising the respiratory muscles. And so we, we provide our patients, I am a strong believer, uh, which is why I'm here talking to you today in part, sure. of the importance of uh, rehabbing our respiratory muscles. So we, but we do that when the patient is, uh, oxygenation now is, allows us to do that. They're obviously stable in other regards. They don't have any uh, recovering from a major stroke or or have a cardiac issues or major arrhythmias. The same, the same rationale we follow for other patients that are recovering from acute respiratory injury.
1: So pneumonia, or maybe even just after surgery, it'd be sure. the same thing. Sure. Yes. Um, well, how do you train the person safely without getting infected yourself?
0: Well, we demonstrate it to them. Okay, we have. Uh, I have one of the devices here. I can sure. show it. Yeah. This is the, this is the, the device that we use. It's called the,
1: the breather. It's
0: called the breather. So it has uh, a port for inhalation and one for exhalation. So there is, and you can separately adjust resistance uh, for each, in each side. So we basically assess well, I mean, the patient is instructed uh, how to hold it, how to properly place your lips uh, around it. And uh, the technique. And then we, we demonstrate, we actually have a glass window we can actually look through. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, and observe the patient at a distance. Now, we also, uh, everybody's wearing N95 and PPE. So you can right. step back several feet, even in the room, and observe the patient as they're doing that. So you don't need to be there in front of them. Uh, and uh, we we observe how they perform. And they instructed to, to uh, initiate the process and then get, it takes a while to get reinforced, to be re-educated until they basically get the hang of it. Uh, but it, it's a way to exercise not only the diaphragm but the accessory, inspiratory, expiratory muscles, the belly muscles, the core muscles, all those things are part of this. So when you, when you think of diaphragm only, but there is a number of muscles in the thorax and abdomen, all participating in the process of ventilation.
1: And they all got very weak.
0: They, Completely right. right for a number of reasons, particularly if they had been on mechanical ventilation. Sure. Because we know that from day one, once you initiate mechanical ventilation, the diaphragm starts to weak to weaken and, and gets thinner and thinner. We don't have ultrasound measurements. Um, so uh, uh, everybody, but particularly those patients who are who have been on mechanical ventilation.
1: That's, yes. that's very interesting. I, I mean that's a big thick muscle that covers the lower end of the abdomen so yeah oh, yeah, yeah. Brad, Brad always brings it up when he goes deer hunting that he he's when he dresses a deer he can see the diaphragm so <laughs> but uh, I, I want to make that point again that you can actually adjust the resistance going breathing in and breathing out I, I think what is it four or five levels of resistance. Uh-
0: for inhalation, there are five, and for exhalation, there are six. Um, oh, gotcha. Yeah. So, but...
1: Uh,
0: I'm guessing so we, most
1: people start at one.
0: Yeah, most start at one, uh, but one is hardly any resistance. So many times, I end up starting our patients at level two uh, right off the bat. You can tell their effort is not... So, we, we get feedback from them on their effort if they experience fatigue. And at what point the experience fatigue? We try to try to hit ten reps, uh, inhale, inhalation, exhalations, twice a day, uh, uh, and sometimes three times a day.
1: Yeah, um, I want to make this point too. I mean, you were saying you can do this with the oxygen. So, like, if you have COPD, you can do this to try to improve your well. Actually, sponsoring. actually, Bob,
0: we this the type of uh, the, the rationale to use uh, respiratory muscle training training started 40 years ago, uh, mostly for COPD patients. Sure. And it's called respiratory muscle training uh, because doing that uh, you'd show that you increase respiratory muscle strength uh, and the uh, patient's uh, endurance uh, improves. So they're able to carry out more tasks. Their shortness of breath decreases. So when you do rehabbing or pulmonary rehabilitation, uh, in our program, uh, we incorporate respiratory muscle training always as one of the uh, interventions that, that we do. So for COPD, it's, it's been a no-brainer for many, many years in our uh, institution and many others that respiratory muscle training uh, is it's helpful. Now, what we have done is we have learned that, that respiratory muscle dysfunction and or weakness are not only... The domain of COPD patients. It happens a lot. Happens patients with congestive heart failure, uh, happens our patient postoperatively. Sure. Patients have been mechanically ventilated for a number of reasons uh, day two, day three, day four afterwards. So it is a very prevalent issue, uh, and both in acute, subacute, and, and chronic stages.
1: Which makes total sense. You know, you, you, you realize how weak you get after surgery on the visible muscles but so it's obvious that the muscles inside are also getting weaker so they have to be addressed and i think i think with copd you know if you can for somebody the the goal might just to be able to go out and get the mail again or you know play with their grandchild i mean they may not be big goals but you can changed the, the uh, traje- trajectory of, of uh, your outcome, I think. So, um, you know, I know there's, I know the answer to this because I've looked up the research on myself, but there is research backing respiratory muscle training, correct? Lots. Yes, I thought so too, yeah, plenty of it. And uh, I got a kind of an interesting question. So when I was in the hospital, always working with patients, you, we see a lot of this spirometer. Now, the, the incentive spirometer, that's really not a training device. I mean, it's not a, a muscle training device, is it?
0: No, it is. It is not. Um, there are different ways to describe it. Some of them I will not use uh, the, <laughs> the, met- the comparison here or the metaphor, but, but uh, it is actually being acknowledged by, by the uh, proper uh, institutions that uh, Incentive spirometry doesn't really do a whole lot. Um, what you do basically is you see in a chamber uh, what your volumes are. Sure. So by seeing your volume go up, it may incentivize you to do a little better.
1: Sure. But,
0: but, but you're not really doing much work when you do that. Sure. Uh, it, it's like trying to lift, you pretend you're lifting weights and you're moving your arms, but you don't have any, any weight.
1: Right. Right. Adding
0: weights, now you're doing work. Now the rest that your muscles are at a medium resistant Now you're recruiting uh, mitochondria, you, the mitochondrial density is almost improved, that you improve the efficiency and so forth. So this is so much different and better. Uh, so I tell my patients, you know, they, they always get an incentive parameter there. It's like guaranteed. Somebody will park one there. it. That's okay. But you're going to
1: do this <laughs> right one
0: battle full of looks you know
1: but right i think it's kind of, it seems like the incentive spirometer is kind of a just a feedback mechanism i mean yeah it's a
0: visual uh, feedback yeah right? but there's not yeah. much work at all in
1: right are there other devices i i mean i i thought i saw some devices that handle one end of it like the inspiration and not expiration right. and and
0: there are other products in the market. There's one that uh, another that is often used or has been. Uh, but uh, for the majority of the ones out there that are uh, competitors whatever, they only provide the inspiratory muscle uh, resistance. Gotcha. Uh, our, our device is uh, created by, it was the respiratory therapist who actually uh, created yep. that. Uh, and uh, and uh, the name of the company is named after her.
1: Oh, no. uh, cool.
0: The PN comes from her name uh, and uh, PN Medical. So uh, it was quickly recognized uh, to her credit and, and others that collaborated with her that, hey, you know, expiratory f- muscle function, or expiratory, uh, the the components of uh, inspiration, you don't only inhale, you have to exhale. And when you cough, you exhale. When you, when you speak, when you phonate, you exhale. Uh, so there are a number of muscles there that are important. And if you can maximize the efficiency and endurance of the whole uh, shebang there on inspiratory and expiratory muscles, you're still doing the patient a good service. There's actually data coming out very nicely in other issues that are not only ventilation, such as dysphonia, dysphagia, uh, stroke patients. They have upper respiratory muscle weakness. By, by using this device, you improve phonation time, you potentially improve the ability to cough, which is important to clear the airways and prevent uh, excessive mucus buildup and infection and so
1: forth. So So I I, I do want to mention that website. Uh, We'll have it down below too in the comments, but uh, uh, www.pnmedical.com, pretty simple. And uh, like, like you were saying, it can be used with people who are having... Trouble speaking, would that include Parkinson's disease? Yes,
0: yes. Okay. Yeah.
1: And I wonder if you just mentioned real quickly, too, sleep apnea, it's such a big problem, too. Now, I, I thought there's been some research that shows that it may help with that, too.
0: Yeah, there's some, some data, uh, and I don't think the data is as uh, solid as it is with, with uh, CBD and, yeah. and demonstrating the importance of diaphragmatic or respiratory muscle strength and so forth. Uh, but if you can improve the muscle tone of the upper airways, okay, and and uh, the decrease a bit that airway collapse that happens uh, during sleep, uh, and you can improve your sleep pattern, you know, by coupling respiratory muscle training with uh, proper breathing and relaxation and so forth, and your, improve, your sleep quality improves, you may actually see some benefits from that. But Uh, I I don't think, to be honest, that we can connect the dots and say that if you use this device, you're going to uh, mitigate your sleep apnea. No, you can't really say that. Uh, But it's just one more thing in terms of uh, sleep hygiene uh, and respiratory function. And if you have obstructive lung disease, if you have respiratory muscle weakness already, then it makes sense to do everything you can to optimize that. Uh, so that even in, in your sleep, you
1: may not see as much secondary gotcha. consequences. Yeah, it's certainly not going to be bad for you.
0: No, <laughs> not at all, of course.
1: So um, let's say you have a person here that's recovering from COVID or has COPD or has dysphonia or whatever. It, I mean, they can initiate this on their own, right? They don't need a prescription. Um, no, they, they don't.
0: Uh, and the website actually uh, provides the uh, information for the patients, and there's some uh, informational, uh, didactic videos, a lot of resources that uh, the patients can, can use, and there's a lot of research there, by the way, that they can tap on. Uh, it's always better, uh, best, uh, to uh, do this with the consent and sure. uh, oh, and, and encouragement of their uh, physicians uh, or, or provider. Uh, the, uh, but uh, no, you don't need a, 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 what is important is though, that there's a rational for it, uh, that there is a clarity of purpose, uh, that the patient is uh, not uh, barking at the wrong tree by,
1: uh, sure. by doing
0: so. they expect, there are some un, uh, completely unrealistic expectations, uh, right? But right. if you are if you recognize that you are in this group, and you mentioned COVID, Bob, let me just tell you, as you know, we're dealing with an explosion of acute uh, uh, post-COVID uh, syndrome, right. or the long yes. hauler. Uh, and we, this is something that is still unraveling that we're trying to understand. and, and uh, But the generalized weakness, fatigue, uh, shortness of breath in diverse forms, and so forth is part of it. And there's some, some uh, other patients that have this autonomia as well uh, added to that in different ways. We're looking into that. And actually we're participating, uh, we'll be participating very soon with a major academic center uh, in the uh, uh, how to, by incorporating respiratory muscle training, among other things, how we can help these patients to deal with this entity, which is it's just a big deal. It is, uh, I'm seeing in my practice every day, two or three new patients post-COVID now.
1: Sure. You know.
0: And by the way, you don't need to have a severe COVID infection to have the post-COVID manifestations. The majority of these patients actually had a mild illness. Really? Mild. Uh, and then this secondary wave of what may be a post-acute event, post-inflammatory state or is, is what we're seeing. So it is deceiving when you think, well, I just had a mild, no, it's actually has nothing to do with that.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I I had pneumonia several years back and a pretty severe case and and, uh, I recovered. And then months later I was at the dentist and my dental hygienist used to be a respiratory therapist and she still could pick up on the wheezing that I had. And that was months later. So, you know, it's amazing. Like you said, the weakness can completely manifest itself years later or months later yet. So, um, with the uh, the breather, I want to just mention too. I saw the videos on training. These are really excellent videos. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I I realize it's better to be with maybe a professional, but because uh, they can give you feedback. But these are really easy to follow, uh, lessons and, um, they do better than we do <laughs> trying to explain how to use it. So, um, I'm also going to mention, I know this is kind of on a side, but I had a little bit of an interest in this. They have the, the breather for, and I don't know if you know anything about this, but they have the breather for basically athletics. Um, now my run, my son was a big runner in college and I really, I'm upset that <laughs> I couldn't have tried this with him because I didn't know about it. But I, I think it would have gave him an edge. It just makes so much sense to me that it would have been a way to focus on strengthening the muscles that he needed.
0: Yeah. Uh, so actually, i have another one here with me. The We call it the uh, the Breather fit. Sure. This is the one.
1: That's the uh, one for athletes.
0: Exactly. And, and basically, th- this came out of uh, at a uh, appreciation that um, people at high performance uh, situations, um, mostly uh, athletes or professional athletes, and so forth, uh, they are um, whatever they are, and they were maybe swimmers, divers, and uh, track, whatever they they do experience uh, a little edge in improvement, uh, and and uh, it, the data is is around that is. is significantly thinner, lighter than what we have on the clinical side. Sure. Uh, there's, there's enough information there and enough, re, re, some of these anecdotal uh, and the studies are, are in progress uh, that uh, we have seen an, an enormous interest and that's what led to this disorder. This but the difference between this one and, and the other is that the uh, resistance uh, uh, settings are significantly higher. Uh, makes significantly sense significantly higher, uh, for a, uh, a completely healthy individual who would not really benefit much from doing this,
1: yeah. Uh, to me, it makes sense. Uh, like uh, as a runner, you know, you're running, you think you're strengthening your running muscles when you do this, but you actually need to include some weight training to, to strengthen the muscles that you're running with, too. Otherwise, uh, your muscles have become too efficient and they don't work as hard. So it, it's the same with, with, to me, it makes sense that the lungs, the accessory muscles, the diaphragm also could use a little boost uh, with, with athletics, especially swimming and running. I, I I feel so. That's just, again, kind of a, a side, but I, I really don't, I didn't have any other questions, uh, Dr. Alderando. Uh I, is there anything else you want to cover at this point? Well,
0: uh, to me, so let's to, to be clear. We're talking. We're talking about respiratory function. Right. Uh, we're talking about the process of ventilation. Right. Uh, Is basically the bellows system uh, that allows us to create negative pressure so that we get an inflow of gas. Uh, then that gas reaches the alveolar the air sacs and oxygenation happens. But oxygenation would not happen unless you had that ability to ventilate, right? And that ventilation is what's impaired progressively with COPD patients. Uh, And that effort that goes with ventilation is now increased. And it's a vicious cycle that results in less and less activity, and the less activity, more weakness. Uh, And that vicious cycle is what pulmonary rehab breaks, right? Uh, so we try to, in a safe way, retrain that individual to exercise, and not only they discovered, you know, um, mentally and emotionally, you know, what it's like uh, to be this way, but there's a muscle memory that is awakened if you will. Oh,
1: sure, makes uh, sense. Yeah. Uh,
0: and um, so uh, this applies to anybody else out there who is, by virtue of severe kyphosis, for example, or the oh, the- sure. Find the thoracic cage deform, yeah. deformed or scoliosis or post-polio patients or a number of entities in which the rib cage is altered. You know, ventilation becomes more and more challenging. You can break the vicious cycle by doing this type of thing. And the other thing I like to say is that um, I become more and more aware of the importance of core muscle strength. In terms of patients, particularly the elderly, regarding their gait, posture, sure. and balance. You know, and the number one cause of trauma in this country is faults. Right. You know, as I tell my patients, it's not falling from the roof, it's right. falling from your it's falling from your own feet.
1: Yes. You know,
0: and it's devastating when it happens. It uh, is. And sometimes, sometimes lethal. Anyway, my the point is that uh, if you look at their respiratory muscle strength on these patients, 90% of them, they have a decrease, decrease what we call MIP, maximum inspiratory pressure or expiratory pressure. When we, in our lab, we, we measure that. So my point is that patients who may not have a primary pulmonary problem, but because of uh, lifestyle or because of the musculoskeletal issues or other things and experience progressive weakness, they actually may benefit. They should benefit from any kind of uh, respiratory, uh, respi- uh, physical therapy, occupational therapy process. But uh, in conjunction with that, they should also uh, ign- should not ignore the benefit of training the respiratory and more than respiratory. I call them my core muscles because these muscles that share functions is not only is not only ventilation, sure. but also balance. And, and uh, gait and so forth.
1: So, I, I would think that would apply also to cardiac patients. That, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I would think that, I mean, have you, has your hospital been, or your clinic, has, have they been in, incorporating that as a matter of? A, a...
0: We, we do. We, on a cardiac rehab program, uh, it is not a mainstay uh, or a, a standard thing to do. It happens more spotty. Uh, there than we do in our pulmonary program. Sure. In, a, in our uh, patients in the floors uh, with cardiac issues and so forth, with heart failure, uh, we do, I do very often because sure. I have sensitivity for that. Right. Uh, but I, I, I look for it, and I when I identify that it is, but it's been shown. Patients who have congestive heart failure, this patient will have respiratory muscle weakness. Okay. All sure. of them. Actually, sense. by... And actually, by uh, by exercising their respiratory muscles, indirectly may actually decrease sympathetic tone, and the the it has a beneficial impact on cardiac function because of decreased afterload basically it improves cardiac function when you unload that increased adrenaline surge that comes from weak respiratory muscles. So it's it's a it's no, another physiologic. Uh, phenomenon that we we know happens and uh, which plays out to some degree in any of these patients
1: i would think certainly in the pr- patient who's underwent you know a cabbage or or some type of cardiac um surgery th- that yeah um, indeed me, yeah. indeed
0: bob actually what it's their studies showing that that pre and postoperatively uh for open heart surgery it doesn't have to be cabbage so it could be a valve replacement Sure. If, if you if you optimize respiratory muscle function before and use it immediately post uh, post op, you decrease uh, the reintubation rate. Uh, uh, they increase the uh, weaning process, so they extubate even faster, uh, and they actually progress better. And remember, you know, everybody who has surgery, one of the goals is to get them mobilized in the first day, up on the field right. and so forth. But if you're very short of breath, it's gonna be more difficult to do that. So if you improve the patient's respiratory function, ventilatory function, uh, the respiratory muscle dysfunction is not as key, uh, they can be more engaging with the mobility, the PT and OTS and so forth at the same right. time.
1: I mean, you could start this, as we mentioned already, you could start this with oxygen you can start it in bed, you can start in a wheelchair, I mean, that's the advantage of this. The beauty of it, yeah. yeah. Very simple and, and I, safe. I want to say, too, this is not a real expensive device. Uh, oh, no. Yeah. Compared it's, to many things, it's dirt cheap. Yeah, it, it's, it is. It's dirt cheap. It's um, yeah. uh, That's what really attracted to us to it, because uh, our, our goal at the end of the day, and I'm sure yours is, too, I mean, we're trying to help as many people as we can. I mean, that's Amen. our outright goal. And... Uh, you know, when I, before I'm put into the cold earth, I want to know that I was helping people and helping a lot of people. So, well, Dr. Eldorano, please thank you. Thanks again for joining us. And uh, we got the website, www.pnmedical.com we'll have it down below. Um, leave comments for Dr. A and um, he might respond, who knows. Uh, But uh, we don't want to hold him to it because he's a busy man, especially with the COVID right now. So thanks again, doctor, for joining us.
0: Thank you, Bob. It's been a pleasure.